0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Food Junkies. I'm Molly Painshab, and I am joined today by Dr. Vera Tarman and our guest, Dr. Marty Lerner. Dr. Lerner is the founder and CEO of the Milestones in Recovery Eating Disorder Program located in Cooper City, Florida. A graduate of Nova Southeastern University, Dr. Lerner is a licensed and board-certified clinical psychologist who has specialized in the treatment of eating disorders since 1980. He's appeared on numerous national television and radio programs that include the NPR Report, 2020, Discovery Health, ABC's Nightline, as well as having authored several publications related to eating disorders. He's an active professional member within several associations, and we are just so delighted to have him here with us today. So welcome, Dr. Lerner. Hi, welcome to today's episode of Food Junkies. I'm Molly Painshop. I'm here with Dr. Vera Tarman and our guest, Dr. Marty Lerner.
2: So Vera, take it away. Okay, welcome, Dr. Marty Lerner. Uh, So just for those of you who don't know who this this, uh, giant in the industry is, um, (laughs) Dr. Lerner is the CEO of Milestones in Recovery, uh, which is a U.S. uh, residential treatment center for people with eating disorders and uniquely, and that's why I'm saying that he's a giant, in the field of food addiction for many years. So he's been working in the field intersecting food addiction and eating disorders since what, since the 1980s, Marty?
3: I think so, yeah, since 1981, actually.
2: And the reason why I say, I mean, the reason why I think this is such a big deal is that In the 1980s, the field of disordered eating was more or less dominated or started in the eating disorder field, and then that field dominated it. But Marty, um, uh, you brought in the whole concept of food addiction uh, gradually more and more until now, I think you uh, deal with it uh, pretty pretty prominently. But I'm going to let you take the floor. Can you give a tiny bit of history about what it was like in the 80s and sort of what it is like now and where you fit into that story?
3: Sure, I'll, I'll try and do the uh, I like to say the Reader's Digest condensed version yeah. of, of all of this. So, yes, I've been doing this for more years than uh, than sometimes I realize, so it really dates me. Um, I will say that there were there were motorized vehicles at the time and not dinosaurs when I started out. So uh, that said, yeah, you know, when I started, basically it really started for me while I was in school and I was doing some research on actually on the regulation of of appetite and food regulation and dealing with it from the standpoint of brain anatomy and uh, insulin levels and so on and so forth. Anyway. Uh, making this longer story a little bit shorter, I asked for some subjects that had uh, formerly had problems with their weight. In other words, formerly obese people, as well as people that never had a problem with their weight and people that were currently overweight. And what I found, to my surprise, this was in the uh, mid to late 70s, uh, we used college students as subjects, which we all know college students are very available and willing subjects. And there were a number of women who were formerly overweight, who I later found out in the research, were using different things to compensate for overeating. And so the language was not about binge eating or binge eating disorder or bulimia was just being coined a term from Europe and on and on and on. So that was my introduction into you know this 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 culture this world that you know I really didn't know existed,
2: and, and just so just that
3: that people, was how it evolved just, for me.
2: Just for people listening, you were an academic psychologist, right?
3: Right. I was in a university in a in a graduate program studying my PhD uh, for my PhD and doing research in, in in the field. Yes, and so from that uh, I I graduated. Uh, and also graduated from laboratory animals to human beings, um, I'm proud to say, and uh, got more and more involved. Published a few, you know, obscure papers uh, as part of the requirement. And then all of a sudden, there was this explosion either in the media um, or exposing the fact that there were a number of people, more than I think the public realized, that suffered from this thing called bulimia. Compulsive overeating or binge eating, uh, as well as anorexia. So the term eating disorders gained some level of acceptance. If we speed that up, uh, I was involved in the treatment of these uh, uh, disorders in an academic setting, and then in a clinical setting, was asked to set up a eating disorders unit um, in South Florida, and that was in 1982. Mm-hmm. So, and then from there went went on. But what I also discovered was going along with that, coinciding with those dates. I was also involved with sending patients who were overweight into Overeaters Anonymous. And then I I also found, ancillary to all of this, that a number of those people were not overweight. As a matter of fact, a number of those people really suffered from bulimia, um, what I will call bulimorexia, which is really someone in my frame of reference that's anorectic, but doesn't meet the weight criterion for anorexia, but uses compensatory behaviors, like using laxatives, or making themselves sick, or uh, exercising, and things of that sort. So anyway, in 1983, I became familiar with a program at Glambe Bay Hospital, yeah. where another person, um, uh, Phil Wardell and uh, March Porter, were involved in yeah. You didn't know all this. All right. So they were in Tampa and I was asked to direct their unit uh, for eating disorders in Miami. And what we were seeing is the majority of people that were uh, uh, being solicited for and coming in for help really suffered from overeating, whether they were underweight, normal weight or overweight. So a sidebar to all this in my world, the poorest definition of an eating disorder is what someone looks like or what they weigh. Same thing for alcoholism. You know, people who suffer from addiction, you're not going to normally pick out of a crowd. So I did not know Phil. I did not know Marge other than their names and that they were you know involved in in you know the work in Tampa Florida I was in Miami Florida and I was introduced into the world of of food addiction so the term food addiction to this day still struggles to be accepted as a legitimate concept just like years and years ago the term drug addiction you know was not was not synonymous with um, uh, the way it is today, so when you say drug addict, you really are thinking of someone who uh, is dependent on, you know, addictive drugs. Nature of the person, but also the nature of the substance, whether those are opiates or, or powder form or cocaine or whatever. And food addiction has yet to be looked upon in that light as well. As it's, is it possible to be addicted to food? Well, not all drugs are addictive, like people aren't usually addicted to aspirin or, you know, or vitamin pills or right. or other, you know, non-controlled substances. Well, not all foods are addictive. So that's where we are today. Yeah. Uh, there's a growing contingent of people that are familiar with the term food addiction. So when they hear that term, it has a whole different meaning and history and experience for them. Then when the average Joe out there or Jane out there um, uh, hears the term food addiction, they usually will scoff and say, well, how can you be addicted to food?
2: Yeah, but but, you've been you've been uh, saying this like long before we've even been thinking about it. Like you you were starting to treat people with food as food addicts like 10, 20 years ago,
3: right? I hate to say this, but it was more like 30 to 35 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Okay. So how <laughs> oh you my know? God, I'm, I'm on Medicare. It's so sad. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway uh, it, for a long time, but I'm not the originator of, yeah. of, of the term food addiction. So whatever I have accumulated in terms of experiences and knowledge and whatnot, to be cliche, has been on on the shoulders of other people, who who came before me, and those people are are like recovering alcoholics. You know, we owe a great debt to the people who uh, started AA and and so on and so forth. So really, the shoulders I speak of are people that are recovering from food addiction and oh. eating disorders, and. Um, you know, uh, uh, tradition forbids me from naming names, but, but those people are also crossed over into being professionals in the field, yeah. just like there are many, many professionals that are, uh, addictionologists or physicians that have recovered that specialize in treating alcohol dependency and, and drug dependency. And hopefully, uh, some of us who are treating food addiction.
2: Yeah. I think you should be acknowledged, Marty, because You're you are a clinical psychologist working in eating disorder when eating disorder uh, professionals generally really disparage the concept of food addiction. But you were taking that on. So, I mean, yes, there were other giants in the field, but you were in the eating disorder field as somebody who held your ground. And I, I mean, that's. That's, I think, incredible because we're still struggling with that battle today. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. In the, in yeah. yeah,
3: absolutely. And I appreciate the accolade and, and, and the acknowledgement. Although I don't think of myself in that light, but I appreciate hearing that. It is very validating on a personal note to be speaking today with more acceptance and more of my peers and more and more uh, yeah. people kind of uh, you know, seeing what a lot of us you know, were experiencing and seeing years ago. So, you know, I'll just use this as a sidebar, you know, analogy. You know, it's also very validating that with, with, um, and I'm sure you know this very, but with the technology now, with functional MRIs and and tomography and, and so on and so forth, we're able to see how close these people in, in uh, 1939 who were looking at at addiction in the, in the wider scope of things as a disease, and then as a brain disease, and now are validated by the science. So yeah. the science has been catching up with the experiential and anecdotal pieces to the people whose shoulders, yes, I'm on, and maybe someone's on my shoulders. Okay, I'll, we're all standing side by side. I'll, I'll take it that way. But anyway, um, so it is very validating, you know, to look at that. But now it's not, it's not anecdotal. It's, it's, it's real. It's evidence-based. It's science. And, and addiction is real, just like um, uh, uh, drug addiction is real and alcohol dependence is real. We now know that food addiction is real. And we also know that what people are labeling as process addictions or behavioral addictions like compulsive gambling or, or sex addiction um, and so on and so forth, that's real too yeah. because the behaviors psychosomatically influence the biology and the biology yeah. can also dictate the behavior. So yeah. I, th- I don't think we have to, you know, split hairs.
2: Yeah, Marty, since you mentioned the concept of process addiction, let me just jump in and ask you, do you think uh, that uh, the whole idea of um, uh, compulsive eating, not actually the substance, but the behavior of eating, like anorexic, or bulimic can actually be addictive, like uh, seen as a process addiction.
3: Yeah, I remember our conversation in, in, uh, at one of the conferences, because I had mentioned anorexia and bulimia. So one of the things, you know, as a product of, of my own experience, you know, in the field, is I don't delineate between anorexia, bulimia, compulsive overeating and food addiction, ah. they overlap so much yeah. that that in my world I I see them all as addictive processes. Okay. And the neural pathways and reward systems that we're both familiar with are identical. And some of the research is just showing that the subjective experience, let's say, of eating may be like a roller coaster ride the way i look at it some people experience a roller coaster ride as exciting and other people like me have a panic attack okay. and some people experience eating as pleasurable and rewarding and there's a small contingent of people that experience it not as rewarding and exciting but as terrifying okay. and and we can go on and on and on so There's the nature of the person, the biology, and the setting. But when you look at food addiction, I cast a wider net than the average person out there because I tend to include the other patterns of eating within that scope. Just like I wouldn't define a compulsive overeater or binge eater or food addict as being overweight because they can be just, you know, they can be normal weight or underweight.
2: So, so the idea of I think it's called orthorexia, where you you overeat on healthy yeah. foods, that would fit into that whole continuum as well, right? And oh I'm,
3: yeah. Or, and exercise addiction, and exactly. uh, and then men have their own their own flavor with okay. working out, and and then that, then a subset of steroid addiction, and then for me, all the all the uh, not all, I'm, a lot of patients that I see all claim to be ADHD, so they could take Adderall. Uh, I mean, it's endless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's endless.
2: Okay, so if you're calling it all um, um, sort of under the same umbrella or continuum, I mean, one of the reasons why the distinction is useful is because of the treatment. So if I buy the eating disorder model, we're going to have the whole moderation thing. We want to be able to just eat normally once we deal with the psychic distress. But with food addiction, we don't believe in that. We believe in uh, abstinence of trigger foods. So would you then in your um, work with your umbrella tell everybody that they have to be obstinate
3: no there's no black and white part of the problem in addiction is dichotomous perception and thinking you know, okay. it's either or. It, one size doesn't fit all. I, I did write a paper about about what's the difference between what we're talking about, an eating yes. disorder and food addiction. Exactly. And the easiest way for me to put this is that, um, and this is a generalization, and whenever you espouse a generalization, the exception always stands in front of you and makes you look silly. But That being the case, I would say that as a rule, if you have genuine food addiction, the nature of the substance or the nature of the foods, there is no negotiating. It's abstinence. As an alcoholic needs to abstain from the substance alcohol, a food addict needs to identify and abstain from their substances. Most of the time, that's refined carbohydrates like sugar and flour. And then you can expand upon that. It does bleed into trigger foods, but for the most part, it's a total abstinent uh, prescription as part of the recovery uh, process. With eating disorders, there are exceptions to this rule. There are people who can tolerate uh, certain foods and the nature of the substance isn't addicting. Let me give you an analogy, but there's a high probability that you're not going to know. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of risk factor. Yeah. So if an, al- an alcoholic, Some alcoholics in AA may be oblivious to taking a pain medicine like Percocet or or benzodiazepine medication, and they don't cross-addict to it, but it's high risk. But the majority of people with alcoholism would not be wise to take substances like that. Yeah. And if you have an eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia, the exception may be restricting anorexia, but if you're, if you're a purger or overeater and anorectic, you have a propensity towards being sensitive physically to these substances that a food addict would be. Yeah. So a lot of people with eating disorders do well on an abstinent or a whole food or non-processed food or however, a prescribed food plant. There are a minority, and I say minority, but I can't quantify it, of people with eating disorders where most, if not all, of their eating disorder is emotionally triggered and doesn't have the physical component, just like there may be some people who binge drink but aren't really alcoholics. Maybe they're more, you know, but it's so hard to tease out. The question I ask myself is, what harm do I do if I prescribe or suggest, you know, um, a whole food plan. Because if we were eating like it was 200 years ago, this wouldn't be a conversation. Yeah. So anyway, it's. It, I wish it was as clean uh, and there weren't exceptions, but there are. So one of the things about treating food addiction and or eating disorders, I think, um, and I'm sure you all agree, is one size doesn't fit all. You have to individualize what is uh, an abstinent food plan, The one thing I would say is almost without exception, it includes sugar and all the cousins that are processed around sugar from dextrose to fructose to octose and whatever else is out there. But then when you get into um, flour, is it is it white flour? Is it whole grain? Do you get into some people get to the point where. Uh, it is orthorexic, or it's it's an exhaustive list and unlivable. And yeah. other people go, you know, I can eat Fritos and still be abstinent. So there's there's something in the middle. Yeah. So I think being a dietitian in this field is more an art form than a science sometimes. Well,
2: yeah. And, and this is the reason why we have such a struggle with the DSM-5 submission. Like, what do we say? Because there's nothing clear. And that's what they want is clarity. <laughs> Yeah.
3: And then you have people, you know, on board that, that, and they, and their intentions and experiences are really uh, well-intended who want to just do a, a keto variant. And I go back long enough that I was running around the halls of my high school with keto sticks, showing everybody I was turning purple. So Atkins came around twice. He first came around in the seventies, then he died down and then he came back and then he slipped on the ice and that was the end of him. (laughs) And then now we have if you stay in this field long enough yeah. and you don't die, everything yeah. circles back in terms of a fad. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, fats are bad. And, and, and uh, then fats are good. And then, you know, on and on and on eggs are bad. Now they're good. You know, you'll go crazy with all of this. The reality is as a rule, the one thing that I don't think has changed when you look at the nature of food is that in, for the most part, things that aren't processed tend to be safer than things that are Processed.
2: Yeah, right on. And so let's look at the clinical work. So you have this program, Milestones in Recovery, eating disorder a program, which uh, embraces food addiction. So tell us what that looks like. Uh, just the. the oh pro- my
3: gosh. Okay. Yeah. So I'll do a little self disclosure going yeah. back a little bit. Okay. In, in the early uh, 80s, when I was giving a little bit of my history, I look at addiction as a generic term. So on a personal note, I uh, was reared in school and academic research, but I also, you know, in therapy and all of that was, had a few mentors that were more on the um, car young uh, analytic persuasion. Yeah. So for them, a cigar is not always, you know, a cigar is not just a cigar. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I ran down the street screaming when I understood what an edible complex meant and huh. I, I couldn't handle it anyway. So- When I uh, was dealing with my own stuff, I suffered with juvenile onset obesity. So eating disorders weren't a term. So I was reared on medication uh, uh, for that and so on and so forth. So my own recovery was a combination of OA attendance and AA attendance. And speeding this tape up, and uh, before Glen Bay, um, I, partic- I, I was involved in uh, 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 IDAA, which is International Doctors and Alcoholics Anonymous, and PRM, which is the Physicians uh, yeah. Recovery Network in Florida.
2: Yeah. And
3: just to just to be clear, I was I was drafted. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't volunteer into the program. I was their number two pick. Uh, my roommate in treatment was Dr. Denial. He was in number one pick. Anyway, I was in a program in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Uh, it was a sister program to Ridgeview and a man named Doug, uh, Dr. Talbert. And so that program was a six-month-long program that's identical to the one I came back and started, uh, uh, which is now Milestones. So I took that formula and transposed it into treating food addiction. Bottom line. The difference, though, is that there are more similarities than differences, but folks with eating disorders and food addiction, the ego structure is a little bit different. So Uh there is a tearing down of the ego. I'm getting a little technical when you treat a lot of a lot of addicted docs because they walk on water as uh-huh. well as, as egomaniacs with inferiority complexes. But uh-huh. people with food addiction, I don't see that as much. So you need to be careful that you're not shaming people. And so that they are, they're in an environment that's more supportive, less restrictive, more uh, structured, um, but at the same time addresses uh, some of the scar tissue and trauma Uh, That usually comes hand in hand with eating disorders and is a little bit different from the chemical dependency world. Although I would say half the people we see come to us having been treated for chemical dependent problems because it's rare to see someone with only one addiction. So milestones is what I call in vivo from the research language. Most treatment programs are in vitro. They're artificial. Anybody could be locked, given a food tray, told to eat this much or not eat more than this and be controlled. And in vivo is real world. So people live in apartments. They they uh, We try to make a therapeutic community where they're uh, learning to depend on each other rather than professionals, attend support groups, they go grocery shopping, they learn how to prepare uh, abstinent meals. So we we do things so that the last day that they're with us and the next day when they uh, step down or go into uh, their their home environment is as seamless as possible. And yeah. that was my experience when I went through treatment, you know for for alcohol and prescription meds.
2: And now with the whole virtual world, are you doing the same thing now virtually or as much
3: as? Yeah, you it's amazing. I mean, there are silver linings in all of this but we're able to treat more people than we ever dreamed would be possible because not everybody can go away to treatment. And number one, and number two, in the virtual world, you can do and reach more people. So I hope they keep the rules the same because I can treat someone, you know, in Oregon, you know, without having to have our residential license in Oregon or have them leave their families to come to us and, when people are with us and they go home, they can stay, you know, in treatment in IOP or PHP, meaning they can they can be with us. They can share meals together if they have a tablet. So we have tablets now, iPads, uh, in the apartments, so people can join in from home and huh. and eat together. Because addiction is an isolating disease. So yeah, if you're yeah. able to eat together and accountable you're not you're not as triggered to overeat as you would if you're by yourself and 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 since they're no
2: longer in the residence um eating the food that you're giving them that you're you're um are you able to somehow determine that they are eating the right foods and and
3: yeah for the for the most part Vera but remember that we're not really feeding them so from the get-go their grocery shopping, they meet with a dietitian and they learn what an abstinent food plan is. And yeah. we pair them up with a mentor in the apartment. And yeah. so they learn how to cook abstinent food. Now we have enough alumni that we have alumni come in twice a week and do cooking classes. Uh, And we have a recipe book. It's really neat. Because otherwise, people like me, to be honest with you, we eat tuna salad seven days a week. Or uh, the same foods. Or, you know, or or get a comfort. And there's a whole creative world out there to make abstinent eating fun and delicious. Right. Right. So there's that part of it. But I think the other part is, regardless of the food, if it's abstinent, being in a community where you can eat together yeah. is different than than you know than other addictions, because when people are able to to do that and be with like minded people, it, it has a, a therapeutic effect that the professionals can't provide.
2: So, so um, in two thousand and twenty, uh, a day in the life of milestones. Would I still be going to an apartment on your setting, or is it all virtual? And so I'm in meetings the whole, like Zoom meetings the whole day. Like
3: oh no, we have people that are live. You mean are there people that are there in residence? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, we we limit that because of COVID. So yeah. our our protocol is they need to be COVID tested uh, within 24 hours of admission. Yeah. then they practice uh, cdc guidelines during their first 5 days right, and their covid right. tests at the end of 5 days and then we have a a ceremony we usually do a human sacrifice every tuesday <laughs> just kidding that's usually a staff member yeah. um, but anyway so we but, but the numbers are much less than they were yeah. but there's a collateral benefit to that because it's a much more intense system yeah. and then the numbers are much greater on on the telehealth side of the spectrum
2: right. so there's okay. a
3: there's a balancing of all of that.
2: And is that like a mixed thing so that if i'm sitting telehealth somebody else might be actually there in person so that oh yeah yeah a room where there's dub, like both happening
3: yeah it's simultaneous in real oh, real time God. Okay, in other yeah. words, if it were, what time is it now? Okay, so it's almost six o'clock Eastern time. Yeah. So people would be calling in on the Zoom room, the Milestone Zoom room, ah. and there would be tablets, you know, in the apartments wow. and everybody would be eating dinner together. Yeah. You'd have six people, let's say in residence, uh, yeah. in one going to an apartment, having dinner at Milestones at the yeah. residences. And then you'd have someone from, you know, uh, on the Eastern Seaboard having Uh, uh, dinner, maybe a couple in Pennsylvania, maybe a couple, you know, of people, different places. And you'd have maybe 10 people, 15 people having dinner. Right. And then we have an alumni big book meeting. Then we have, it's, you know, we're, it's just, it has a life of its own.
2: Yeah. Okay, good. That, thank you. That, that's an, that's interesting how you can actually still do a program despite the challenges of 2020. Okay. So one of the questions I had is if a person can't afford inpatient care, is there stuff that they can do like, or even just follow up, like after they've done the program and they want to still yeah
3: hang yeah
2: in? Yeah. So, so, yes, I- that's like what's your aftercare program like
3: or Yeah, we have an alumni program. So yeah. we do we do meetings that are are not OA meetings, but we do our own, you know, alumni get involved in doing a big book meeting. Okay. One of the issues this is a sidebar thing is is I don't want people doing food addiction treatment as a food plan only recovery is much more than that. So we try to to embellish beyond the food. So there's a big book meeting. Then there's also a weekly Sunday night alumni meeting and they get together. There are plenty of resources. The problem isn't the resources. It's getting people to follow through and not just make this a weight program and not just make this an abstinent food program. So there's that piece. People can see um, the therapists that they worked with as their primary therapist and milestones individually if people don't have funds we educate them on how to get insurance hopefully this will change with the new administration Um, hopefully um, well i won't get political anyway uh, we have new people and it's a new day so um, i'm hopeful and uh, but even if people don't have insurance or they don't have funds we resource them to oa groups we also have a mentor program where they ho- we can hook them up with someone who's been through milestones yeah. and to be honest with you like all of us we you know if we think someone's really motivated and they and they and they're persistent enough they find a way i don't know how else to put that we can't offer free treatment but we don't turn people away. I don't know how else to put that. And yeah. there's more latitude with, with telehealth than we had when it was you know, face-to-face.
2: Yeah, okay. Now, uh, Marty, I got a couple of uh, terms, if you could just define a constructive living model. What does that mean?
3: Wow, <sighs> okay.
2: <laughs> That's a big question, is it?
3: No, no, I'll, I'll, I can distill it. The, um, in, in Western psychology, <laughs> psychiatry, and okay. therapy, um, the Holy Grail has usually been feelings. How do you feel about that, you know, and and getting in touch with your feelings? So in my experience, most people with addictions are not out of touch with their feelings. They just don't want any part of them. Yeah, Uh, I find that's true with addictions. So I don't know it's about beating up a pillow that looks like your mother. So Constructive Living uh, came from a professor of psychiatry who's really an anthropologist, David Reynolds. He teaches at the medical school uh, at UCLA. And I met him while I was um, uh, doing time, hard time in treatment myself. And he he turned me on. He's not an addictionologist. He turned me on to how they, uh, Eastern philosophy and how that integrates into Eastern psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And the mantra there is you are what you do, not what you think or feel. So in this, in Western, you know, it's, it's, let's change your thinking, cognitive behavioral, that'll change your feelings. And maybe it'll change what you do, or it's, let's talk about your feelings. And if your feelings can be identified, then your thinking will change. And then maybe your behavior will change. I've never seen an addict get well as a, uh, by making as a condition of their abstinence, feeling different or thinking different, right? You'd have to do different. Yeah, yeah. So Constructive living is about putting the horse before the cart. Okay. So it's basically that your feelings are not going to be controlled by your, by your will and your thoughts. Maybe you can influence, but that's not going to be controlled by your will. That the only thing you really have control over is what you do. And the only exceptions to that are biological processes, like stopping your breathing for 10 minutes. So that's a very uh, simplified version of this, but it's it's a blend of Eastern philosophy, Eastern psychiatry, um, and common sense.
2: Okay. It's also um, AA in the sense, or 12-step in the sense that we say act as if, right? Uh, oh,
3: boy, could I get in on this? Bill Wilson, unbeknownst to a lot of people, if you really get into him, yes. had, had, it was more... It was more Eastern philosophy in the 12 steps than people realized, although oh. it had a lot of Judeo-Christian elements to it and a lot of evangelical, you're yeah. talking about a guy or a group of people, or I don't know, who who were more, more in prayer and meditation. I mean... I mean, this guy also was doing, oh, oh, God, um, before Nixon came in office, was doing a lot of therapeutic, not recreational work with psilocybin and LSD. Yeah. And it had profound effects in the treatment of alcoholism. Now, John Hopkins. Um, And a few other places are picking up on that and using it, you know, therapeutically and MDMA. I won't get into all of this, but it's following science. It's not in the service of uh, recreation. So his flavors of spirituality and his flavors of understanding the 12 steps and how it all evolved have elements that go beyond um, uh, just uh, Western culture.
2: Okay.
3: I'm impressed.
2: Okay, so thank you. In another sort of area, treatment success. What's your definition of that?
3: Yeah, that's a tough question. You know, in 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 the world of we- research and science, it's it, it's a tough one. Because in the whole world of addiction and mental health, you're dealing with self report. Mm-hmm. So if I could if I could take a a blood sample and then tell you well, this this element, you know, you know, shows before and after. Uh, it's very hard to do so you, when you're relying on self-report you get an exaggeration of success so if you do a telephone survey to alcoholics no you know decent recovering alcoholic you know uh, or recovered alcoholic or uh, relapsing alcoholic is going to be totally honest you know so you're going to get people that are so ashamed that they've relapsed they won't tell you or they won't participate and those that are successful will participate. So if I said to you, of those people who returned surveys or responded, the success rate is like 88%, it's a false number. However, what I would say um, is that the attempts to look at uh, success rates in AA and NA and and those programs, uh, they vary widely, but I would say it's probably similar to those programs. But I will say this, it's, it's, it's probably over 80%, if not higher, of those people that continue to participate yeah. in some recovery activities.
2: Right. So basically, it works if you work it, and you have to work it.
3: That, you know, it's not a scientific, you know, statistic, but no. it's the most honest one I can give.
2: Yeah.
3: You know, yeah. and and for me personally and professionally, the way I deal with that is by seeing with my own eyes, the people who are sitting in the, zoom meetings or in the face-to-face meetings or or that i interact with i mean that's you know but i don't know you know i don't think anybody has an accurate number yeah
2: okay Uh, it does strike me as i i I might be being unfair here but the uh, success rate if you work it is seems to be more successful than eating disorders where there's a high recidivism rate my guess is because we're not catching the, the food addiction piece in that yeah
3: yeah, I think you're right, and and I think it used to be that way with alcoholism. You know, in the '80s and whatnot, because then it was anything goes. I mean, there were heroin programs like Phoenix House that used to tell heroin addicts who were recovering, you can drink alcohol. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. you're right. You know that 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 if you're not addressing the the emotional as well as the physical as well as the spiritual components yeah. and you're addressing this as the eating problem only or the depression and eating problem only you'll have a much higher relapse rate than if you're if you're casting a wider net
2: yeah so just in summary from what from what you you're offering is you're coming from an eating disorder model imposing on that, uh, the addiction model and in, in making the umbrella bigger. And within that, there's this uh, spiritual piece, this Eastern piece that you're uh, also embracing. And that that's, if we do all of that, it can be an 80% success rate.
3: I think so. And that we just add one asterisk to that. And that yeah. is that you need to keep an open mind. So you need a staff that's not going to shame people, if yeah. they're still abstinent from their eating disorder behavior, but, but are eating foods that are not typically thought of as abstinent.
2: Uh, Right. So,
3: so you don't want to shame people if something's working for them, although they understand, have to understand the risks any more than I would want to shame someone in another fellowship if they were taking a medication that I didn't agree with.
2: Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Because they may be part of that minority where it does work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's good, Marty, for me to hear that, because I do tend to be kind of rigid on that. And and you're right, there is, there are people who can. Okay, so Molly, did you want to take the signature question um, to sort of close us up here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I just want to make one comment about, you know, you guys having that conversation about, you know, the like recovery stuff. Like it can't just be about food plan, weight plan. There yeah. also has to be this yeah. recovery thing. And as a licensed mental health clinician and a licensed addiction counselor myself, you know, my anecdotal experience has also been my clients who come to me with alcohol, heroin, meth, I don't care what trauma. it is, food, trauma, yeah. all the things. If they are doing a 12 step program, as well as working with myself or any other professional right. in the community, they're recovery their success however we want to label that Mm. is so much bigger better than anybody who's just doing just coming to me once a week and can't get abstinent or can't get you know more than a few days at a time strung together when when they're working that 12-step program when I can say wow what would your sponsor say about that or Mm you know, have you called anybody or when was yeah. the last time you were to a meeting? Or what does the book say about that? But when I can use that as a tool with my clients and just kind of give it back to them, like they have to go back and they have to look at that and, and they grow each and then they're coming back and they're like, wow, that I talked to my sponsor about that. Or I called somebody in program about that. And I didn't pick up since I talked to you last. Yeah. I, so because they're reaching out and when they're doing that work. So I just want to say, you know, you know, thank you so much for pointing that out. I think that's that's huge, that we have to have treatment and recovery.
3: You, you make a very, very, very important point. We need to treat, but also speak three languages. And <laughs> yeah. the three languages that, that we need to speak is our professional language, as our licenses and training have provided, but also recovery speak yeah. and understand it. And the third language, at least in this country, is insurance speak.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's that too. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
3: they're, they're suicidal and about to jump off the roof, but yeah. you know, whatever, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. so, and that, you know, because we're talking to different audiences at different times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, thank you so much for, for kind of just putting the nice little bow on that for us, for sure. So our signature question, the, the thing we want to know from all of our guests is if you could tell a younger version of yourself even if it's just a five minute ago younger version of yourself, right? Something about food addiction or food acu- food recovery. What would it be?
3: What would I tell myself? Oh, okay. I would I would try and frame it in terms of my having a disease, and not uh, a shortcoming of my character or mm-hmm. lack of willpower, and and try to do battle with the voice in me. Uh, that calls it shameful and, and try to tap into the voice in me that acknowledges and begins to accept that it's a disease that has a treatment that's available and use some kind of compassion towards um, being imperfect. Because I grew up, you know, I, I, and again, I, I don't mind saying this, you know, as a, as a form of self-disclosure if it'll help somebody. I mean, I grew up hating my body and hating that I was doing something that I didn't want to do. For addiction for me, the Kodak moment was standing in front of a refrigerator, hating my body while I was eating when I really didn't want to eat. Uh-huh. And, and I didn't learn until later on in recovery what that was about. So, so that, that, that piece is what I would like to go back and take that kid and say, it's not, it's not you you know, you, you you're you're sick, and you know, and and this is what you need to do to get better. So that that's what I would like to go back and redo.
2: Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Marty Lerner. Just for those of you who are listening, a reminder: Dr. Marty Lerner is the CEO of Milestones in Recovery and has been working for, I guess, almost forty years. Uh, oh. I know I know it's a scary. Story. I started
3: when I was six.
2: <laughs> yes. Working in the field of eating disorders and food addiction all this time. And so he's speaking from personal and professional experience. Thank you so much, Marty, for joining us.
3: On yeah, I, I'm so glad I didn't miss this and I, I really enjoy talking to you guys. It's it's um yeah, I, I, I need to be in touch with people in my tribe. That's the best way I can put it. You know, yeah. it keeps me it keeps me going. So thank you very much for the opportunity.
1: Okay. Thank you. Oh, and Marty, one last thing, and we'll definitely oh, sure. put it in the show notes. But if people want to get what's the best way for people to get yeah. a hold of you there, or find there, your information?
3: There are two things I would say. One is, you know, go to the website like everybody else. It's milestones program, milestones plural, program one word dot org. And after you read Vera's book. And her newest book, you can read my book, but you have to read hers first. Oh. Um, and <laughs> you you <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah. you could get it as an ebook. It's not, you know, it's not like something that's widely distributed. Um, it, it's just, it's just something that's available. It's my playbook. Okay. So it's a distillation of everything you're hearing me talk about. And that's the best way to get in touch. And then, you know, we'll go from there.
2: Okay. Thank you so much.